Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, evangelism, but not just evangelism, power evangelism, and how that works, and we'll be interviewing uh, our special guest uh, for this week. So Ken, could you, could you first uh, explain the difference between uh, evangelism and power evangelism? What do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so um, evangelism per se, I think a lot of people would have at least an intellectual uh, familiarity with it, if not a practical, i.e. they were doing it, familiarity. Uh, Standard evangelism along the lines of what's been practiced um, in evangelical Christianity for, well, most of the last century or more has really involved a heavy reliance upon apologetics Um, classical arguments for, say, the resurrection, or why we might believe in the virgin birth, why Jesus is the Son of God, anything like that, where we're trying to give people an intellectual grounding. And that word intellectual is critical here. Um, They they were trying to bring them to uh, an integrated point of view in their mind, in their processing capacity, where they put the dots together that um, allows them to understand that believing in Jesus does not uh, necessitate committing intellectual suicide. Let me say that again. Believing in Jesus does not necessitate committing intellectual suicide. Now, having said that, yes, there are many people who say things that we kind of, you know, furrow our brow, wrinkle our nose and say, what are they talking about? But But to be a a Christian does not mean that you have to commit intellectual suicide. And so the standard practice of apologetics and of evangelism is to show people why it's reasonable and rational to believe in Jesus. Sometimes this becomes known somewhat pejoratively as uh, arguing people into the kingdom. Power evangelism, in contrast to that, uh, relies less on the intellectual arguments. It doesn't, it doesn't put them down. It just doesn't put them in the first place. It puts those arguments in a second place. And in place of that, uh, power evangelism puts the demonstration of God's power into the first place so that the miraculous, and it could be in any dimension, it could be healing, it could be walking on water, turning water into wine, whatever. It could be walking through walls, uh, rebuking the weather. There are a number of miracles that are in scripture, raising the dead. We could go on and on. But anyway, this demonstration of God's power becomes the primary apologetic such that people realize God is real. We're not trying to argue people into it. We bring them into a direct encounter with God and they experience him. And out of that, a lot of those intellectual barriers, a lot of those objections to Christianity are effectively dealt with because they really don't matter when you've just seen somebody with a blind eye get their vision or somebody who was dead come back to life. Um, so these are really the two vectors. Ideally, we'd be doing both, sometimes this, sometimes that, but, but most people divide into one camp or the other. And so today on our show, we have Sandra Hicks Martin. She is um, an evangelist, I think, more than anything. She's based in Houston, Texas, and our paths intersected actually a few months ago when a friend of ours, joint friend of ours, uh, sought to introduce us. And Sandra's been involved in evangelism on multiple levels, um, and she's worked with some of the better-known ministries um, in the evangelical slash charismatic world in our time. 
Um, she makes movies, she distributes them. And so we've asked her to be on the show to talk about, well, her take on evangelism and especially power evangelism. Sandra, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, why don't you give us an introduction to your background so our listeners know a little bit about who you're, who, you know, who you are, and then talk to us about how the Lord got you uh, into this, into this game of power evangelism, because um, before the broadcast, you were using the language of you were dragged kicking and screaming. So it's an interesting story. <laughs> well, back in the dark ages, when I was uh, around 20, I, my goal was to be the next Carol Burnett. So I actually went out to Hollywood and studied and then, uh, but I'd met a guy in college and um, as, as hard as I tried to stay in Hollywood and do that thing, uh, my, my heart was in love and I couldn't let go of this guy. So it, it finally got me back to, uh, Oklahoma, where I was going to school. I guess it turned out because we're about to hit 40 years anniversary. So I, I guess he was the right guy, huh? Anyway, so as a way to survive and keep my foot into the filmmaking business, I started working for somebody that makes corporate films. And the minute I got behind the camera, I went, oh, this is where I'm living. So I, I uh, kind of grew my career on that kind of thing. And then in the late 90s, I did a a film called Pray USA. It was a worldwide prayer movement to get people to pray for America. And that kind of started my moving into more faith-based things. And then in uh, around 2012, 14, 15, whenever it was when Furious Love came out, uh, God had spoken to me and told me that he wanted me to stop and make a way for other filmmakers to get out there. So we distributed that film we worked with churches and we got it in a thousand churches in 23 countries on Valentine's day. And I did that for a year or two. And then hallelujah, I got to go back to creating films. Cause if I'm not creating, I'm not happy. So I now, started let me doing just interrupt you one second, uh -huh. because I, I just want to interrupt you for one yeah. second. Um, so you're talking about distributing a, a film into a large number of churches. Yes. Unpack that for us a little bit. How much work did that take? <laughs> what kind of activity did that take? And then talk to us about, for you personally, why distribution is less satisfying than creation. Well, a number of years before that, I was sitting looking at a filmmakers, and this was before the digital revolution. You really had to be connected to Hollywood or your film was just not going to get out there. I mean, it was really for the frozen, chosen few and independence where we just, there really wasn't much going on. And there was a time when uh, I was looking at a guy's film and I said, you know, the problem with us independence is, there's just no way to get our film out there. And he said, yeah, maybe one of us, not meaning he or I, but a independent filmmaker should stop and make a way. And when he said that, I'm telling you, it was like lightning bounced off the walls and went through me. My 16 year old daughter was in the room at the time and she goes, wow, did you feel that mom? God just spoke to you. <laughs> so I don't know how many years go by, probably 10, cause you know, God, he lets you marinate in it for a while. And, um, I was thinking about doing this where films would be shown in churches and it was a way, it wasn't just a movie night. I think we charged like $5 a ticket. The church got a third, the filmmaker got a third and we had a third to get this thing out there. And do you know who Patricia King is? Mm -hmm. She's a, yeah. Well, Patricia was a friend of mine and Patricia had what she called, uh, commissioned me to be a general in God's media army as she had called it. So the producer of Furious Love was a friend of hers and she said, I'm telling you, you need to let Sandra distribute this film. So that's how we got that film and we did it. And uh, I don't even know how we did it. People used to invite me to film festivals to say, how did you get that done? And I would just try to 
muddle through because I, I really don't know. I mean, TBN called me and said, how did you do that? The most we've ever done is 600 churches. And I'm like, I don't know. We just started marketing, getting it out there. And I, we sent stuff all over the world. It was, it was, it was a lot of work. Um, so I'm glad that over. I'm just a creative person. I'm a storyteller. You know, there's a verse in the Bible where the disciples said, hey, Jesus, how come you tell so many stories? Yep. This is Sanders' paraphrase. And he said, because stories make the hard ground ready to hear. And I went, okay, that verse is just for me. I'm just a storyteller, whether in real life or with the camera or whatever. Story, story, story. Got it. All right. So you put in a lot of hard work. You had this unusual calling from God, which was actually uh, confirmed by your daughter. And, you know, when you said that, it reminds me of the verse where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And the father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. But the people standing by said, some thought it thundered. So uh, there uh, are times, so this is biblical. There are times when the word of the Lord comes to somebody, in this case, to Sandra mm -hmm. and third party witnesses, they know something's going on. They may not know exactly what's going on, yeah. but they know it's something of God. It happened in the Bible. It happened to you. Yeah. All right. So you get drawn into you got get drawn into starting Heartstone. Take us forward. From well, that, that was that was uh, when I was distributing to churches. But then I went back to creating because what the Lord had said to me twenty five years ago was, "I want you to reclaim the airwaves." Well, who knew what that meant? Right. You no, know, and I've really had to grow into understanding what that is. And He's given me other things along the way. And then about ten years ago, He said, "I need you to create a hub of sorts." And this is a place where people could come from all over the world and we could all share God together. So I started working on that a few years ago and then I laid it aside. And then a year ago this month, I felt like God said, now it's time. And this is a place where we acquire content. It's not just our content, but it's, uh, you know, you have like Netflix, but Christians are getting sick and tired of the stuff that's out there and it's not edifying. And, and you know, a lot of us have had to protest because when they're going to do these horrible movies, where they absolutely attack, you know, Jesus, I, I just can't be a part of that. And a lot of people are that way. And I think that's why even podcasts and stuff are becoming more popular because we're just not going to watch that stuff. So our site, Heartstone Network, we have movies, we have docu-series, true stories, a lot of testimonials. We have a, a section on our site that's actually really popular called Encounter Jesus. And it's where people send us their testimonies. And, and then we have, um, places where we teach people about warfare we teach people about prayer and then we just have like stories docu-series these are like full-length feature stories or four episode series where you get to walk through and watch people hanging on to god and getting through hard times or what or whatever it is yeah um, so so you're using story as an evangelistic means i am <clears throat> and i assume you're having you know, testimonies rolling in, maybe not every single day, but, you know, here and there and everywhere, um, you're yeah. seeing the harvest come in. It's interesting you're doing this because I want to say it was early in 2020, but I may be off by year. It could have been 2021. I was in some meeting somewhere <clears throat> and Cindy Jacobs stood up and said that um, God was going to start using media and the internet as a vehicle of evangelism. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, we've had this explosion of stuff in the wake of COVID because so many yeah. people were locked down. Mm -hmm. They couldn't travel. So they all figured out how to use Zoom or whatever. Uh, they started doing podcasts. They started doing webinars. So in fact, her word has come to pass, but you were, I don't know, a generation ahead of that, weren't you? 
Yes. And I do have, you know, we have stuff. The first month we launched, I have a series called Walk With Me When War Comes to Your Door about an Irish global missionary stuck in the South Sudan War with 150 kids. We launched that on Amazon Prime. And the first 28 days with no marketing at all, we had 5,000 hours viewed. And I thought, well, you know what? What we need to do is, is like, Ken, you're doing things. I'm doing things. There's a lot of people that love Jesus trying to do media. And I thought the reason Netflix and these places are so powerful is because they have thousands of storytellers all in one place. And as Christians, I do, I make a ripple, you make a ripple, we're all making a ripple, but we all need to get together to make a big splash. You know, we're being dominated. Uh, the airwaves are by these guys and, and we've got to get together. There's some awesome content coming out now, you know, and of course everybody knows about the chosen, but there's, I see all kind of great stuff anymore. It used to be, it wasn't true, but it is now. But anyway, part of that story, I went over to, uh, I spent many months in Africa in 2016 and 17. And one of the first stories, Heidi, Heidi Baker of Iris said, I need to take you to meet my friends, um, uh, Jose, Jose and Albertina. Well, he was one of the most feared witch doctors in that Providence. And he showed up at one of her outreaches with three puff adders, which are the most, if they bite you, you only have 20 minutes and you're dead and you ain't getting in no hospital in Africa that amount of time. So he showed up with three puff adders and what he would do is they would bite people. And then he would say, you have to give me all your money and I'll reverse the curse so you can live. You may or may not live, but he showed up. And if you know anything about Heidi Baker, <laughs> she hunted that, she wasn't scared at all. All she saw was this little man who was tired of the darkness. So within a matter of a few minutes, she got him to take the snakes that was his livelihood, put them in a hole, burn them, accepted the Lord, got baptized and married his girlfriend who had leprosy at the time. And then she got healed. Now that was a humdinger of a day. That's all I got to tell you. So anyway, I made a like 35 minute story of this and luckily they had shot footage the day that all this happened with the snakes being burned and all so i spent many weeks there going back and forth to the village and we created a like a little movie a, a 35 minute movie on this so after it was done i went back in november of 2000 or i went around christmas in 2017 to show the film and uh i went into the village and i showed the people that were in the film we saw they saw it which was they were frozen paralyzed because A, they don't get to see many movies. B, they sure don't get to see it with Africans and it was them. So yeah. after that, um, I then go to uh, Uganda and I'm showing it in um, refugee camps over there. Now, when I got over to Uganda, I got hit by a big truck and almost killed, got home, survived. After a year, I went back. So I took the film into the refugee camps and I said to these people, the first night I showed it, I said, I know in your culture, it's to be loving and honoring, but I need you to do me a favor. I need you to be really honest and tell me, do you want this kind of film? Do you want more of these films? Do, please don't have me come over here and spend my life doing this if we don't care. I mean, one after another, they stood up and I'm just bawling like a baby because they tell me how beautiful it is. They said, oh, we need everybody in every language to see this, but here's what got me. This guy stood up and he said, you know, in our culture, Anytime anything goes wrong or somebody gets sick or hurt, we go to the witch doctor. Because you, you know, if you know anything about Africa, that's what they do. They run to the witch doctor. And he said, that's we, just saw, we just saw the big witch doctor burn the snakes and say that Jesus is the only answer. So that tells me we need to quit going to witch doctors and we need Jesus. So every time they show that film, people get saved. 
and baptized. And so the, the crowds were so big, we had to send over a bigger sound system of like a thousand people. So that's what's happening. In fact, right now there's a revival going on right now. They've gone to another village. And so every single night for two weeks, they're showing the film and people get saved. Now that is in Africa. So we do have examples of what's going on here in America, but I don't want to keep yapping. If, yeah. you want, if there's anything you want to, you know. Well, I think, I think that's a great segue actually, because um, yes, indeed, the social dynamics are different in Africa. And, and you talked about some of the things that really took people by surprise. Oh, this is a movie about us. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a movie about a witch doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking to them in their story. Yes. I think Jesus uniquely understood his own context. And ideally, we understand our own context as well. Um, one of the problems we have in, in the Western world, and particularly as we move up the socioeconomic ladder, is people become fragmented from their own communities. It's not to say they don't have friends, right. but they don't live communally. Whereas in a society like that, um, everyone sort of knows everyone. Everyone's kind of at the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, what they share is some sense of blood, uh, common tradition. Uh, they share meals together. Uh, they live communally. They don't, they yes. don't compartmentalize and isolate whether it's, uh, you know, I'm in my car, I drive into my garage after I click the clicker, I put the garage door down. I never see my neighbor. I don't interact with anyone on my street. Everybody's interacting with everybody and there the kids still play together out in the street and people don't, I mean, whether they should or not, I don't know, but they aren't worried about every predator that may come along uh, unless it's a lion out of the jungle. So it's it's a completely different context, but there's something uh, in what you've seen there that is grabbing people en masse and they're saying we really want this that we just saw on the screen so what do you think some of those takeaways are that we could translate back into a western society like the united states well i think it's seeing is believing that's the power of testimony so for example um Mario Murillo is kind of uh, gaining traction right now. And Mario's doing a lot of tent revivals. I'm yeah. doing a kind of a life story on, on Mario. So I've traveled to a lot of his, his uh, services. I was in one in California not long ago and Mario was just standing up at the front talking. And this woman came running down the aisle in the back. She's going, ah, ah, and her daughter is running behind her crying. And Mario came down off the stage and he said, madam, tell me, what has God done? And she goes, I was just sitting in my chair and God healed me of MS. She had multiple sclerosis and she'd come in a wheelchair. And so the daughter's going, that's right. She's been in a wheelchair all these years. So I took the camera and I said, show me. So I went running back through the crowds with her and I looked at the wheelchair and I said, what are you going to do with the wheelchair? She said, throw it away, you know, and, and Mario believes And I think he's right. You were talking about power evangelism. Mario believes we're in a day where it's the signs and wonders that's going to bring people. So, you know, I was recently, Ken, when you were here in Houston, I was recently um, at your seminar and you were talking about, you know, some deliverance and stuff like that. Well, right about that same time, I had somebody that works for me. uh, She works in my house and she came over. She needed to borrow some money. She had 
two years ago, she got sepsis. And she's a young girl in her 30s. She got sepsis, went into coma, almost died. Came out of the sepsis and had fibromyalgia. And she's in so much pain, she can't really work anymore. They've even done chemo to try to stop the pain. She has young children. She can't really care for them. It's been a very, very sad, tragic situation. She came over to my house to get something. And just the look on her face told you how much pain she was in. And she was all puffed up from the medicine they're giving her. And I said, you know, sweetheart, sometime we're going to have to pray for you for this. She goes, oh, yes, please. And my assistant had just walked in and she said, how about now? I said, all right, let's do it. So she had been reading uh, books about deliverance and she had just gotten a bunch of prayers out of a book that um, John Ramirez had written. Okay. So she sits down and I said, now, first thing is you have to forgive your mother. That's key. We're, we can't do anything until you do forgiveness. She forgave her mother, really just started crying. We walked her through all the stages of deliverance. And when we got to casting off like witchcraft and stuff, she said, wait, wait. My sister, you know, my sister that took care of me when she was so sick. My other sisters told me to stay away from her because she dabbles in that stuff. Oh, hello. Bottom line is, is, is she prayed these prayers and did a lot of manifestations, you know, the coughing and vomiting and all that kind of stuff. And I just want you to know, guys, she wasn't feeling better. She was 100% healed. This kid who would take her two, four hour days to do something can now do it in three hours. She got up the next morning and she went like 16 hours and her husband is crying going, my wife, my wife is back. My wife is back. The children are all going, mom, mom, the neighbors, the neighbors are what's happened. So what do you think's happened? We're all supposed to go over this Sunday because they all want us to come pray for them because they all want to receive Jesus and they all want that kind of life. So Jesus is now bringing all these people into the kingdom because his love touched that little girl. And all, all we had to do was say the prayers. See, there's, there's just seems to be a lot of stuff out here that the church is not aware of. And we're, we're impotent, you know. Yep. John Ramirez, who was in this, was the Satanist, they said he was just shocked when he came into Christianity at how weak and, and just limber Christians are. We just ignore our power. Yep, that's exactly correct. And I've often said that um, in, you know, in today's world, there's, there's a lot of things people would like to be talking about. Um, Paul talks about if anyone brings you a different gospel from the one you received, mm -hmm. uh, let him be eternally condemned or accursed, depends on the translation. Sounds like very harsh language. But really what Paul is saying is stay with the gospel that you received which obviously they received it from him and he was seeking to mirror the ministry of Jesus. And so we can easily get sidetracked into lots of conversations. Uh, they might sound very heady. They might sound very important. Uh, they might play well on CNN or Fox or the blaze or Breitbart or wherever. But at the end of the day, Jesus modeled what, what true evangelism looks like. It looks like going through all the towns and villages um, and in your case, with some of what you're doing in Africa, it is literally among villages. Mm -hmm. uh, in our time, it might be in suburbs. That might be the language we use in America. Um, but he preached the gospel of the kingdom, which is, we, we've got to be careful to stay on track with what that is. And then he healed the sick. And he, he gave some prophetic words, but it appears from the way the gospel writers present it, Jesus was more engaged in healing and deliverance 
and maybe miracle working as well, which isn't the same as healing, um, even than deliverance, although he clearly, or excuse me, than prophecy, although he clearly did use prophecy as a tool on multiple occasions. He did it with Nathaniel. He did it with Zacchaeus. He did it when he called Peter and John and then, or Peter and Andrew and then James and John. Um, he did it when he called the woman at Sychar, the well in Samaria. Um, so he clearly did use prophecy. And I think sometimes that's been underemphasized. But anyway, this was, this was the nature of what ministry looked like. You know, it, it, I think it's very frustrating to us in the modern time that he didn't, he really didn't speak into the context of the oppression of Rome very much. Um, you know, when they asked him, should we pay taxes? He said, pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, mm -hmm. which, which basically sounds like, you know, submit to him and comply. I mean, I don't know, there may have been more behind it that, that was not captured in the text of scripture, but, you know, he says, yeah, pay your taxes to whom you owe taxes. And uh, when Pilate confronts him and says, tell me, are you a king, which would itself be a sufficient cause for execution, because that would be treasonous. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In, in other words, I'm not here trying to sort all that out. But what he did do is he very fundamentally addressed the immediate felt needs of people, their sicknesses, their sick children, uh, their sick mother-in-law, in the case of Peter's mother-in-law. Um, he addressed their needs for deliverance. I mean, he did all of that. And, and I think we can learn from that, that as important as these other things can be, that's the most important thing because Jesus modeled it. Well, as you travel around the world, what are you seeing? Are you seeing it's this power evangelism that you called absolutely. it, it's doing it? Yeah, absolutely. I've never been anywhere where we get into a political conversation and it results in mass conversions of people, never. I mean, I guess it could happen, so I don't want to rule it out, but I've not yet seen it. What I've seen is, um, I, I've literally been, this happened particularly in Indonesia, I've literally been on islands where literally, literally every person on the island was converted. Um, wow. as a result of one or two significant healings, because everybody knew everybody, you know, maybe there was five or 10,000 people living on the island, and word got around quickly that something has happened with, you know, whoever it was, and everybody knew that person and their story, and they could validate that this person who couldn't walk now could, or this person who'd been dumb could now speak, or this person who'd been blind could now see, whatever it was, and it was, it was electrifying the effect was nearly instantaneous. I mean, it was as fast as news could travel. And sometimes, you know, we would start with a relatively small meeting and it would grow over a couple of nights as people heard about what happened on night one, more would come and then on night two, and then finally on night three. And, and I'm, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it happened every time. I don't want to overstate it, but there have been times where we would go to islands and literally every single soul on the island would come to Christ. That's got to so, be pretty exciting. Oh, it's unbelievable when it happens. Wow. I mean, there's really nothing like it. So wow. when we get dragged into all of these side kind of conversations, again, I'm not saying that we don't care about justice or we don't care about some of these other matters. We're called to be people of justice. We're called to act justly. We're called to take account of those who live among us as sojourners, meaning they're aliens in the land. They yeah. don't really have citizenship rights. We're called to do that. But the main and the plane of scripture, to use a, a verbiage that John Wimber used to use, Jesus went through all the towns and villages healing the sick. 
and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons. I really think that's where we need to be because that's what we'll get. People are remarkably self-interested. And if they have sick children, sick husband, sick wife, yeah. I mean, there's just something about that, that when it happens for them, it just literally turns them around. Wow. Are you well, seeing an increase in this in the United States? I am. Yeah. It's been an interesting season, um, you know, of late uh, with our lockdowns and everything. Um, I've not been outside the United States since a year ago, February. <coughs> and we're seeing, um, we're seeing a lot of really dramatic uh, breakthroughs. And, you know, one of the most dramatic, by the way, that's very, very relevant to our time is uh, we're seeing a lot of people get healed of COVID using a particular prayer that I've been teaching on. Uh, I don't teach on it very long. You don't need to teach on it for very long. But Grant and I had a friend. What is what is Josh? Thirty six years old. Yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, right in there. He's in his mid thirties, and he's a fairly prominent uh, guy in in Nashville in the music and movie uh, community. And uh, anyway, he's a father and you know a husband, and he has younger children. Obviously, at that age, he would. Um, he came down with COVID and initially it didn't look like he was going to make it, but we prayed this Kateb prayer over him and we had to contend for it a couple of days, but anyway, Josh is okay. Now um, I have taught on this in a few places and people have picked it up and carried it away. Yeah. And people who are, who are putting it into practice are seeing breakthrough yeah. healings. And we, we have lost one person that we prayed the Kateb prayer over. There were some unusual circumstances there. I don't know what to say. I guess you lose them now and then, but but every other person that we've prayed this Kateb breaking prayer upon them, uh, we've lost no one else, not a single person. Well, it must be spreading. I just got back from Santa Barbara uh, a couple of days ago, and somebody had heard about this through a vineyard church. I think you must be connected to some vineyard people, and they were telling me about it. They were all up at a meeting I did in Central California about ah, a month ago. Okay, and I well, that's where on it this. came from. And we had five people with long-term COVID symptoms healed in the meeting. Yeah. Uh, several people called friends having heard kind of how to pray this thing. And they had friends they prayed for over the phone. They all got healed. They had me pray for several people over the phone personally. They all got healed. Wow. I mean, it, it's been it's been a game changer. It really has. So when people see that, they're like, hang on, wait, I, I want to know about this Jesus he has power even over COVID. Yeah, even over COVID, believe it or not. So do you have that teaching? I know it's probably not long, but do you have that teaching on Kateb on your website? Um, yeah, it's on It's on a teaching that I did back in March of 2020. But um, very soon in the next few days, I'm going to do a standalone recording on it so people can find it very readily awesome. on my YouTube. And other oh, that'd things. be good. Yeah. yeah Too it's many people great. are anyway, dying. So that's just an example, right? People are highly self-interested. They have needs their real needs, and they want answers right now. Yeah. And when the well, Lord I, meets them, they're like, I'm in. I think, I think too, Ken, I mean, I had a conversation with uh, some listeners uh, yesterday. Shout out to, uh, to Ty and uh, his wife, Maddie. But, you know, basically talking about this idea of, um, you know, it's hard to think about what's going to happen in the next five years, much less where am I going to go after I die? And people are, are less interested about that than you would imagine, but they right. really want to know what's happening now. I mean, yeah. the, the, the evangelism paradigm without power is really logic and reasoning and, and a case for Christ and all that sort of thing. And fundamentally, though, we're not logic-driven people. 
You know, this is why cigarettes are still being sold. Uh, we, don't, <laughs> we don't operate off of logic. We operate off of emotion and what we see. And I mean, these are the things that drive us. And so I, I think it's fair so, is high. Fear yeah. is high right now. Yeah. And so yeah. It's so dynamic to see the inbreaking kingdom now, as opposed to at some point when I die, where am I going to go, you know, to this ethereal place that they can't define. I think it's so important uh, for the time, even well, now. You know, everybody's worried right now about what do we do about America? What do we do? What do we do? How do we save America? This is my belief, and I bet you agree with me. Here's my belief. You know what? There's so many things that we can't control. So many things that we're all just crazy about losing our freedoms and that sort of thing. So here's my answer. We have to go out and get as many people following Jesus as we can. That's the best shot we got. <laughs> that's about right. And that's yeah. what we're here for, isn't it? I, I mean, you know, it's hard not to say, oh, Lord, you know, I really love America and all that. But, you know, we're really, it needs to be about God's kingdom, you know. Yeah. I think God is less interested in America than he is Americans. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yes. And you know, the thing that's hard for a lot of Americans is if we're honest, we know, you know, or if we were, you know, educated in just the basic documents, we all of us understand that uh, once upon a time, America was, uh, I don't know, America was a Christianized nation I'm not saying we always lived Christianly. There were a lot of deficiencies and shortcomings and we could sit here and elaborate on them. And there would be reason to do that at another time, maybe. But the bottom line is, if you look at the founding documents and you look at the things that are in the Federalist Papers, or you look at the things that were in the writings of everyone from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson, to John Adams, to John uh, James Madison and so forth, if you just read what they wrote, it's pretty clear that that although they understood they were building a government, they were attempting to frame it on Christian principles, and much of their thinking was governed or, I don't know, dominated, if you like that word, but, but was somehow uh, informed by Christian sentiments and the Bible. And most of them were church-going people. I, I don't know what their spirituality was. It probably was very different from ours, because people weren't moving in signs and wonders in those days. But you know, they read the Bible, they took the sacraments, and they, they believed that Christianity was the truth, and this was kind of the way the world ran. Uh, this, was, this was in the national consciousness, and I would say it was the predominant way of thinking about things for a long time, and that all started to come unraveled in the 1960s as a result of several influences, not the least of which was the sexual revolution, which literally and deliberately sought to tear down the foundations of conventional morality. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, it accelerated out of the 60s. And, you know, here we are in the 2020s now. Um, so we've had about a 60 year run. We're roughly two generations into what literally has been a, a revolution. We, we have gone through a revolution. It was a mostly bloodless revolution, not entirely bloodless, uh, but it wasn't marked by, you know, war and conflict, civil war. Uh, of the type where you would see many, many thousands of people dying. But I know there'll be people listening. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm naming this here so that those who are very sensitive to this stuff, I know about Kent State. I mean, I know about Martin Luther King. I, I am aware of these kinds of sacrifices that the price that was paid and the blood that was shed 
I know about Selma and Birmingham. I am aware. But, but what I'm saying is that this wasn't like an army rising up against an army, as you might have seen in, say, the Civil War. It doesn't look like the Bolshevik Revolution, where there was a purge and the entire intelligentsia was wiped out. We didn't see anything quite like that. That's what I mean by we didn't have massive bloodshed, but we did have some. But anyway, and as all of that gained, gained uh, traction, we now find ourselves in a place where Christianity is, I would say, highly questioned and actively opposed by much of the intelligentsia. Um, not only is Christianity questioned and opposed, but the things that are being promulgated, I mean, you mentioned that many Christians don't want to watch what's in the media. There are many things that are being put out through Hollywood and elsewhere that are, they're just downright offensive to people of faith. Yeah. And they're going to turn this off or they're going to get drawn into it and be feeling internally. I, I want to watch this because my lurid side wants it. But my more spiritual man is saying, no, I don't want that. And so they feel that conflict within them. And so that's where we find ourselves today. It's a very, very different America from the America that I remember as a kid growing up in the oh, 60s yeah. and 70s. I, I mean, it, it is a very different nation. And so with that, you know, in a time like this, many people don't even know to turn to the Lord because they haven't been raised in the Lord. They've never seen a Bible or never read it, never heard it preached. And so they literally don't know where to turn. And when we show them, hey, God's still there. God loves you and cares about you. God's willing to put on a show on your behalf. He's willing to come to your rescue. And people run into that. They're like, wow, wait a minute. I never even knew that there was such a God. I always heard that, you know, God was associated with hate speech or that, yeah. you know, people believed God was the white God or, you know, whatever they were told. This is a complete paradigm shifter. And it's proven by the fact that God is willing to undertake for them in their sickness or their child's sickness or their distress of some other sort. And they realize, wow, this is, this is, this is incredible. I had no idea. Do you feel a sense of urgency now like you haven't in the past? I do, yeah. I do, because I think the time is short. I think we have a lot of things that are, you know, converging in our society that are, uh, that are unhealthy, that are dangerous. Um, I think the societal trends uh, do not speak well. There's been a lot of hatred and dissension sown from group to group to group. Um, so it's hard for us to find a consensus and a center. Um, I, think, uh, I think a lot of the churches in this country are enervated. And by that term, enervate, I mean they are uh, they are rendered um, listless is probably a good word for it, uh, ineffective. Mm -hmm. George Barna recently came out with a poll. Grant and I have done several podcasts on this, uh, but George Barna recently came out with a poll in which he said that out of the roughly 380,000 houses of worship in America, of which about 20,000 aren't really Christian, so we'll say 360,000 erstwhile Christian churches, uh, there's really only about 30,000 of them that are in any meaningful sense uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, Ken, you got to be kidding me. Absolutely. You got to be kidding me. That's what Barna That's said. Like Isn't that what 10%. he said? That's 10%. Yeah. Right. 10%. It, it, matches, it matches with the, the study that he did right after that said 3% of the uh, population of the country um, actually adhere to a biblical worldview and, uh, and values, which is 
roughly the same as India and Iraq. So, yeah. And there's probably a high number of people that think there's lots of ways to heaven. Even oh, people that say they're Christians, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's quite alarming. Okay, so what's the answer, Ken? What are we going to do? Well, we got to reconvert a nation. We got to reconvert. No, but, you know, back to something we said on that earlier podcast. Um, when I was in seminary, one of my professors one time, he, and it's, it sticks with me many decades later. Uh, I don't remember a lot of things out of that class, you know, as, as happens, you know, right? You take a class and you forget a lot of it. But um, I still have the notes from that class. But, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that's still in my mind is I remember one day he was lecturing and he said, you know, we actually are not just seeking to convert people. Of course, everyone in the class was like, what? Wait a minute. Hold on. Because this is an evangelical seminary. What are you talking about? We don't want to convert people. What, what do you? And of course, he did that to get us to pay attention. And he said, we seek, seek to change the deep structure of their worldview. Those are his exact words. And I remember them, you know, all these decades later, we seek to change the deep structure of their worldview. We are literally seeking to reformulate the worldview of people who carry in their minds, you know, a mental map of reality that is out of compliance with biblical reality and bring them over to where they think Christianly and they perceive the world through Christian lenses. And I think that's one of our biggest barriers to the supernatural is there are many people who nominally confess the fundamental truths of Christianity, but they don't actually think about the world from the standpoint of the kind of engagement that God himself exhibits in the pages of scripture. Right. And I always, and, and I know this is very, very um, uh, problematic to a lot of people, what I'm about to say. So everybody on guard, here we go. Ken is about to make a controversial statement. Okay, here we go. Uh, but the, uh, for many people, what they don't realize is that the Bible is not just our sole rule of faith and practice. That's the language the reformers use. It is actually our guide rule to a proper worldview. And in order to view the world as we should, we must take on a biblical way of thinking. Now, in the school that I went to to get my Master of Divinity, they no longer acknowledge that there is one biblical worldview. And so, you know, they're, they're into this diversity of worldviews, and with that, they're trying to slice and dice. Wow. But Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven comes to those who get a new way of thinking. That's what metanoia means. It means a changed mind. So they get a new way of thinking. What it, so if they get a new way of thinking, it's not just any old way of thinking. Just, just grab one, whatever seems good to you. Taoism's as good as Hinduism is as good as Christianity. It's rather the kingdom comes to those who reform their thinking along the lines of biblical standards and guidelines, and they learn to think the thoughts of God after him. And as they think the way God thinks, now their perceptions on the world shift, and they begin to see what God could do here. I don't, I don't even want to say, see what is the possible, because that sounds very new agey. Mm -hmm. but, but rather, what could God do? What could that one that Jesus taught us to call Father, what might he do here because he gets off his throne to show us compassion, according to Isaiah 30, verse 18? If, if the God of the universe is willing to get up off his throne on behalf of, you know, we that are made of dust, 
then what could happen in this dire, desperate situation? The kingdom comes to those who see what the father might do and are just gutsy enough to reach out for it. And in that, breakthrough happens. And suddenly people go, wow, God was there all along. That's right. So, you know, as, as the old saying goes, if you shove all the letters together, God is nowhere, have the identical letters to God is now here. And so we can shift from God is nowhere, meaning he can't be found at all, to God is here right now. And when people understand that God is that close, that the kingdom of heaven is in their midst, bang, the entire world changes, miracles happen, healings happen. And with that, people say, I want that. I'm tired of this other way of living. It isn't working. There's too much pain in my life. It's failed. I tried it. And whatever it is that I was into, whether it's my drugs, my sex, my worldliness, my, you know, chasing money, my, you know, you just go on down the list of all the things that people fill their lives with. And suddenly they say, there is a completely different option available. And I was never taught it in school. I was never taught it, uh, you know, through the media and all the movies that I watched. I never learned about it through reading all of the popular blogs and Facebook posts. No one was teaching me about this. And I want to hear about this. And I think the only way they're going to hear it is if we proclaim it and live it out and demonstrate it. Do you see people waking up to wanting it? Depends where you are, but directionally, yes. What does that mean? Uh, there are pockets where people are not waking up and they may be highly entrenched and resistant, but there are other areas where people are maybe more receptive. And I think this is kind of, you know, Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. If you've ever watched a field get ready for harvest, there might be, you know, that back 10 acres there and it's ready for harvest right now. But this one other 10 acres over here isn't quite ready but give it a little bit of time, it's going to get ready. And, and part of the job of a farmer is to figure out, do I harvest that one now and go around that one? Or do I wait three days because now this one will be ready, but I won't have lost that harvest over there. That's part of the master skill of being a, a, a harvester. And so there are times when I've been in places where I go, I just don't think it's time here yet. I'm not saying it'll never be time. And I'm not saying God doesn't love them. It, it may be that their hearts are not yet ready to receive for any number of reasons. And then there are other places you go where people are like, tell us now, we want it now. I remember one time when I was doing a lot of prison ministry and uh, I had, um, I, I was leading our prison ministry in our church and we were in uh, 17 prisons in Southern California. And, you know, I would visit uh, those prisons, but I had one unit that I myself personally took on and I would go there week by week and minister to the inmates. And uh, one day we had a larger than normal gathering, as I recall, it may have been around a holiday, probably coming into Easter, or maybe Christmas. But anyway, um, so we had a larger than normal gathering and, you know, I'd prepared a sermon. And so we were doing a service for them and I got up to speak and I was starting to do my sermon. And one of the guys that came all the time, and this was a medium high security facility. So, I mean, these guys were in for some bad stuff and you know they some of them had violent backgrounds and so forth this one guy stood up and he goes he says uh can we just cut out the the sermon this morning uh, I, I, we don't want to hear that just tell it just tell us what we need to do <laughs> okay so close the notes throw that to the side and just you know give them st the straight shot word and a bunch of them, you know, gave their lives to the Lord wow. that morning. Now, the thing that was interesting was because they were inmates, you know, they would be there next week if they if they chose to show up. They could choose not to. 
but uh but if they chose to show up they'd be there next week they weren't going anywhere unless they were you know up for discharge so you know we could track these people it wasn't yeah all those hands went up and they all prayed the prayer and we counted them as converts but we didn't really know what became of them we actually went on to disciple many of those people and to you know raise them in the faith so that when they came out they might you know go on with their faith and begin living it on the outside and actually as a result of the work that we did among those prisons uh, the governor of california flew me and uh, some of my team leaders up to sacramento and gave us an award for the work we'd done in the california prison system even the government was recognizing the value wow. we did. well you know you said something that that kind of triggered a thought in my mind you were talking about earlier when people say yeah we're ready for it tell us tell us okay See, we shouldn't be in a place where we just have people in ministry or preachers or whatever, because some people think, well, that's a preacher's job. But Ken, you and I both know it's the people in the pew. It's everyday people that need to be doing that. We shouldn't have to get to a place where everybody has to wait for an evangelist to show up to tell them. That's so right. What, I mean, what do we need to do to get to believers? No, they need to go out there and start talking. If you really love people and yep. you really love God, let's do it. Let's start sharing. You know, in the book of Acts, it says that those who were scattered in connection with the persecution of Stephen uh, went about preaching the gospel as they went. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, some of those that were scattered were people like Philip the Evangelist, and he ends up being kind of a showcase in Acts chapter 8 of what he did. But, you know, back at the Jerusalem church, I mean, they had laid hands on him. They put him in front of the congregation, so he had some amount of leadership and prominence but he was also one of the seven that was appointed to take care of widows. And so he had, a, he, you know, he was probably recognized not only for his miraculous gifts, maybe not even just for his evangelistic gifts, but because he had a gift of helps. He had a gift of, uh, you know, maybe a gift of service. Um, you know, some of these kind of less dramatic, less esteemed gifts, mm -hmm. but it wasn't only Philip. It says those, that's a plural word. That's not, only Philip went preaching and went to the Samaritans. It was that all of these people who had been scattered in connection with the persecution or the death of Stephen, all of them went about sharing the gospel. And so um, one, one friend of mine years ago, who was kind of an early mentor of mine, uh, he used to call it gossiping the gospel or good newsing. He turned it into a, you know, a verbal form. So we're supposed to be going about good newsing, telling good stories, giving people something to, you know, have hope. Um, we, we should be, you know, chatting about the scriptures and the gospel as we go. You know, yesterday I was in Denver and I was having lunch with two guys and we're just sitting in this corner booth yakking. And while we're talking, um, this guy in the booth next to us, he gets up and he turns around and he says, you know, I've heard you before. And I said, you have? And he goes, yeah, I've heard you. He goes, you're on the radio, aren't you? And I said, um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't broadcast on the radio, but I've been on many podcasts. I have a podcast and I'm often on talk shows and things like that. He goes, yeah, I know your voice. I've heard you before. He goes, I really like what you have to say. He goes, I could overhear what you guys were saying in this, you know, in this restaurant. Of course, I have a kind of a deep, sonorous voice. So it sometimes it doesn't serve me well. My voice sometimes carries too much. But anyway, um, so you know, but we were talking about God and the things of God and what does it mean to, and so this guy could overhear it and he stood up and I thought, well, this guy can hear it, they can hear it, and they can hear it, and they can hear it too. And so, you know, we were gossiping the gospel, but we weren't really per se preaching. We were just talking about our stories of God 
and in that this guy in the next booth over was you know boom it came to him and so you know we had a moment with him and um then he got up and you know left the restaurant and went on his way i mean i think this should be part of the normal christian life for everyone and in that I always say when I teach on evangelism and, and, and people, I, I mean, I, I'm deliberately using the language, even though for some, it may, it may be a little tough to hear or to swallow, but you know, in the sales business, if you're a salesman, one of the things they teach you in sales training is do not hesitate to ask for the order. Always ask for the order. Always, always ask for the order. Even if they say no, Make sure you ask for the order because there'll be some people who don't quite know how to engage with whatever it is you're selling. Uh, some people may be waiting for you to ask. Some people may have a hesitation. And if you ask for the order, they'll throw it out there. It'll give you a chance to address it. And then, you know, now they'll, they'll sign up. And so evangelism is like that. Evangelism is, well, let's not get carnal here, but, but evangelism in some, is in some ways analogous to the sales function of a corporation or a company. And so if we are called to be engaged in the evangelistic enterprise, in that sense, when we're functioning evangelistically, we are, we are behaving like the frontline sales force of XYZ Corp. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't want this to turn into something carnal, but so if we understand that, then like a good salesman, we cannot hesitate to ask for the order. And that means whenever we are, you know, in, an, in a conversation with people, um, you know, there may, be, there may be that opportunity. And I think for a lot of us that are Christians in a, you know, middle-class context or, or higher, maybe upper-class context, I think for a lot of us, we've been, um, what do we want to say? We've been trained, we've been raised, we've been cultivated such that we are now somehow ashamed of the gospel. We've been told, if you, if you try to convert people, you're actually pushing your beliefs on them. How dare you intrude on them? And I think a lot of Christians carry a sense of awkwardness and shame about speaking about Jesus. Uh, they don't, they don't want to foist their ideas on people. That would be disrespectful. Um, but, but we still come back to, we've got to ask for the order. Paul even had to admonish Timothy about this. And so what I, what I encourage people is look for that, look for that moment. And it may literally be a fleeting moment. So it may, it may just sort of come in just for a moment or two and then it's gone, but look for that opportunity right there where you could say, you know, you've just heard us talking about this. Have you received Christ? Would you like to receive Christ right now? Would you like to pray with me and, and, and uh, be born again? We need to learn to ask those questions again, even if it seems weird. And not be discouraged because this is what I learned a long time ago. Sometimes God will use you to get somebody to first base. That's right. Somebody else takes them to second, somebody else to third. And sometimes you get to be the lucky one and see them cross home plate. I so totally agree with discount. that. The thing that I've seen happen, though, is a lot of times people say, well, I'm a seed planter. I don't ever harvest. And I'm like, OK, it might be that you are primarily a seed planter, but you should still ask for the order, because if you will, I don't know what the percentage will be, but some percentage of the time you will be the one who writes up the order, not just plants the seed. <laughs> well, I think I think this is a good way to to land this plane uh, as we're coming up on an hour here of just it's been really fun uh, to listen to you guys. And, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Hicks, I, I really think you're putting me out of a job here. I love it. 
And <laughs> you did such well, a great what, job. What's your job? What's your job, Grant? What's your job? Well, well, in okay. this, in, yeah, in this, in this host environment, man, you killed it. It was wonderful. Um, <laughs> so I used to be a journalist back in the day. Question, I, question, question. My friends, when they go to lunch with me, they refer to it as the interview. Yeah, I love it. It was great. I'm, I'm taking notes. And, uh, but I, I think it would be a good way to, to say to help direct people. Uh, I know we've got two, two things here uh, going on. And I know we were talking a little bit before the show um, about your network, Heartstone Network. And I know there's a lot of evangelism uh, stuff driven there and content and training and all of that. And so could you give us a little bit of insight of how people could, you know, so maybe they're hearing this, they're hearing. Yeah, and I will I'd love to. We yeah. also, I wanted to say, uh, Ken, as you were talking, uh, a lot of stories will pop it into my head that you can see in a series called uh, Unstoppable. You know, some of you may know about the, the movement Sean Foyt did when he's going across the country with the worship movements. We followed him and it's a couple of episodes called Unstoppable. And it's pretty exciting about what's going on and the people coming to Christ and, and all that. But anyway, all of our content is free. And I know there there is no catch. Um, people have told me, oh, you should have memberships. And I go, but I just, I can't, I can't. I want to give Jesus away. It's just, it's about Jesus. I want people to come and get encouraged. I want them to be equipped. I want them to learn something. I want them to be inspired. I want them to learn new ways of warfare, just be inspired by our stories. So we have all kinds of stories and teaching and podcasts and testimonials and, and movies and all kinds of stuff, but it's free. It's Hearthstone, not heartstonenetwork.com. You do have to put in your, your first name and your email. That's the only price of admission, but you get hours and hours and hours of content just for that. And of course, we don't send out and try to sell you or anything like that. It's just, it is what it is. You know, I'm not driven by, I don't know, I'm, I'm past all that getting your name and lights and making money. It's just not what I'm about. I, you know, I'm going as fast as I can so that when I stand in front of Jesus, he goes, all right, girlfriend, you did what I told you to do because, you know, I'm 62 years old and I don't know how much time I have left to work it as hard as I can because filmmaking is a very hard, arduous job. I'm working, I was recently in the Hill Country having a cup of coffee with a friend and we were just chatting. We were griping about politics and I saw something out of the corner of my eye and I turned and looked and I'm not kidding you, a movie screen dropped out of heaven right in front of me and Ezekiel 37 played on it, the Valley of Dry Bones. Wow. I was weak need for two days. So I'm in the middle of creating something that all of us working on, it's it's epic. We're going up to uh, a place north of Fredericksburg and I have a guy that looks just like Ezekiel. I, was, I went to do something in Dallas and I was standing there looking around <laughs> thinking, I wonder if I need to video any of this. And a guy walks up, stands about three feet in front of me and he goes, hi. And he tells me his name. And I said, oh, my gosh, you're Ezekiel. He had this long, beautiful beard. He's actually a wealth manager, but he has this beautiful beard. And uh, I said, you're Ezekiel. He goes, well, let me show you some pictures. I just got through playing God and Moses in a play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I recruited that man right then. It is so awesome. So anyway, it's a whole CGI thing. Where we're recreating the throne room of heaven and Ezekiel. We got some stuff from Isaiah, but. Ezekiel's out by the river, and then we got into the Valley of Dry Bones, which all that is about is revival. Yeah. So that's what God is speaking to me. It's about revival. So this is a, this is really a piece about calling in the army of God, and let's get to it, and let's get about our master's business, and quit worrying about you know 
the price of oil here and how are our kids going to do? You know what? God chose us for this time. He could have put us in the 40s. He could have had somebody else be in our place. But the truth is God must trust us with his people and his land and this day and time. So we've got to stand up and own that trust, in my opinion. That's great. That's so great. Well, thank yeah. you so much for, for taking time uh, to, to be with us. I know you're busy. Ken, I know, I know I'm never sure where you're at in the world, and it looks like you're home. I'm home. Uh, and I know that you also have some uh, some evangelism uh, training and uh, and series on uh, on your website orbisministries.com org dot org and uh, and your uh, the app that you can go download as well, which you'll hear about uh, as this show concludes. But uh, guys, thank you so much for taking time out and and well, thanks for having really me. getting us fired up. It's been it's uh, it's really fun. And so, okay, so remember uh, all you girls out there, you go be Joan of Arcs. Okay, Ken, so who are the guys? Are you guys that uh, Tom, I mean, um, Mel Gibson character in, uh, what was that when he goes, freedom? What was that oh, movie? That, yeah, Braveheart. Braveheart. Yeah. Okay, so you guys out there, go be Braveheart, and you girls, let's go be Joan of Arc. <laughs> you know, one of the people that's, that, well, there's two people that are really kind of, um, for me, worthy to think about on the yep. male side of the ledger. Yeah. One of them was a man named St. Francis Javier. And uh, he went as a missionary to China in a time where, I mean, there were roads, but nobody traveled there, except if they were in trade and, you know, they were whatever trading silk or whatever between Europe and China. It was a very long and arduous journey. It was very dangerous. But St. Francis Javier went there and he preached to the Chinese. Well, you can tell from his name that he was um, he was not a Chinese speaker. So he had to learn the language late in life and he was ultimately martyred in China, but um, he was, he's, he's credited with founding the Chinese church in the 1500s. And then there was another man named Ramon Lul and he was a Spaniard um, and he became burdened for the, uh, what were then known as the Moors. And so he began to study, uh, he began to study Arabic and when he was in his 70s, from memory, I think he was 77 years old, but in his 70s, he crossed the Mediterranean Sea, went to North Africa. And as I remember, he was in Tunisia, or maybe maybe the land area where he was is today known as Algeria, but it was kind of that area right through there. Uh, and he preached for four years, and then he was ultimately martyred as well. But he had a, he had a very fruitful ministry, converted many Muslims. He studied their texts and so forth ahead of going. So he had a relatively short ministry, but a very powerful one. And, um, and I, I just think, you know, so often people reach a time in life, maybe, well, not unlike the one you and I are in, Grant's a little younger, but, uh, and they kind of figure, well, you know, my, my job now is to take up crochet or golf or duck hunting or fishing or uh, playing with the grandkids. And, you know, I've sort of done my time and I'll just put my tithe in the basket I think I think the examples of Ramon Lull and St. Francis Javier show us that, you know, it, it is never too late to be fired up for Jesus and to be thinking about how can I best impact my neighbors for the Lord. The thing that really got Ramon Lull, you know, started on his journey was he was looking at the things that were being enacted against his Muslim neighbors in Spain in the wake of, you know, the ongoing conflict between Christians and Muslims. And he thought that some of what was going on wasn't entirely fair. 
and you know, rather than rising up against all that, he he just became burdened and he went as a missionary to their homeland. And so, you know, the things that provoke us often are the very things where God is calling us. Mm. And I would just encourage you to turn your thoughts to how can I bring the message of Jesus to those situations about which I feel the most provoked, even at the risk of my own life. Amen. That's good. That's so good. Well, and not to mention as, as far as uh, um, people to be inspired by would be none other than uh, these two guests, Kinfish and uh, Sandra Hicks. So thank you so much uh, for, for taking time with us. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And we look forward to uh, seeing you right back here next week. God bless. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.